From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Space nuts. Hello again, and welcome to the Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me as always from the Australian Astronomical Observatory is Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. <laughs> good day, Andrew. How are you going? I'm really well, thanks. Good yeah, to, good uh, to talk to you again. Yeah. Now, we've got uh, a few things to talk about today, as usual. Uh, we're going to talk about a near miss that happened uh, only very recently, uh, in fact, uh, about a week ago. Uh, and it's, um, yeah, it was a pretty close call. And what was interesting about it was that we didn't know about it till probably the last minute. <laughs> Maybe not that <laughs> close, but uh, uh, it, was, it was a near thing. We, uh, we had a solar eclipse as well, which uh, just seems to fascinate the world. Solar eclipses aren't uncommon, but every time there's a big one, everybody goes out in force to, to have a bit of a look. And Scott Kelly returns to Earth after doing a series of experiments in zero-G to see what sort of impact it has on the human body. And there's a fascinating sideline to that, and I reckon we've found a cure for back pain. But we'll get onto that <laughs> a little later. But first, this, uh, this near miss, an asteroid... Um, which uh, came, well, reasonably close to Earth. I mean, in astronomical terms, it was, it was mighty close, Fred. Well, yes, that's right. But, um, you know, close is, um, is very much a, uh, a relative term when it comes to asteroids. And um, the, the bottom line is always uh, a miss is as good as a mile. Uh, so it doesn't really matter how close it comes as long as it doesn't hit the Earth. Earth. So this particular one, um, an asteroid with the incredibly glamorous name of 2013 TX-68, sounds like the latest model on Mazda or something like <laughs> yeah, that, it, um, um, it um, flew by uh, the Earth actually on, um, on March the 7th, uh, but the distance was actually over 4 million kilometres. So 4 million kilometres, OK, that's small compared with the distance of the sun uh, from the Earth, which is 150 million kilometres, but it's large compared with our nearest neighbour in space, which is the moon. It's really, it's, a, it's more than 10 times greater than the average distance of the moon. Uh, so uh, 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 certainly uh, a near miss in some terms, but really quite, um, quite a, a generous uh, miss in, in others. But yes, the thing but, that's... Uh, Fred, I, I think what is fascinating about this one and, and somewhat scary is that uh, because of where it was, we couldn't see it. And that, that's uh, right. That, that was yeah. a big problem. So it's all about, um, you know, it's all about discovering these things and uh, and working out uh, what their trajectories are likely to be. Uh, and in fact, the news um, on that front is still pretty good. Uh, this particular object, as its name implies, was discovered back in 2013. But the key thing about asteroids, um, Andrew, is that 
Uh, the longer you can observe an asteroid for, the more fixes you get on its orbit and the more accurately you pr can predict where it's going to be. So back in 2013, when this thing was discovered, it was only seen for a few days, I think. And that meant that the error on its future position was actually quite large because you want as long an arc as possible to, to observe them. Uh, and the, uh, the, the thinking certainly back in 2013 was that this would not uh, hit the Earth. There was no chance of that, and that's certainly the case. But what wasn't known was the, the, the sort of margin of error within which it would miss the Earth. And, and I think some of the, um, some of the, the more um, daunting uh, estimates were that it would pass within, I think it was something like 19,000 kilometres, which is uh, well within the, the, the ring of geostationary satellites that, that uh, surround the Earth. Uh, but uh, as you've said, the issue with these things is always that if they are, um, if they're coming at you from the direction of the sun, you don't have much of a chance of making observations of them. And that's how this thing made its approach this time. So as it, uh, as it uh, approached, people, uh, scientists knew it was on its way in, but it was actually very difficult to observe to get a, a, a more up-to-date fix on, on where, it would, where it would pass by. We so knew in, would... in real terms, they could not be absolutely accurate about how close or far away it would be, and that, um, that was just a little bit hairy. That's right. So that the... Um, that the estimates um, dating from 2013 was that it could have passed as close as 19, I beg your pardon, 30,000 kilometres, 19,000 miles, uh, 30,000 kilometres, about the distance of geostationary satellites, or as far as uh, 17 million kilometres. So that's a big range of uncertainty. Um, what is reassuring, though, is that we knew that um, it was never going to hit the Earth. It was always going to be, um, you know, something that would, would fly by the Earth quite safely. But the, the, the caveat with these things, Andrew, is that because you don't know how near, <clears throat> how near the Earth it's going to come, that uh, distance has a profound effect on how near this thing might come to the Earth the next time it comes mm. around. And so that is why... Uh, these things are always interesting. They're of great interest to near-Earth uh, asteroid uh, spotters and scientists. Uh, and those calculations will now have been made because the flyby, uh, what it did take place, as we said on Monday, um, it, it looks as though uh, the next close pass of TX-68, put this in your diary, Andrew, 18th of September 2056. OK. Uh, but, so I'll, but, be, I'll be in my 90s by then. <laughs> I'm still around. Yeah, I'll be well over 100 by then. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, that, that's... Um, and and the, the calculations that are being done now on the basis of, of where this asteroid passed, they're, they're what will tell us how close it will come in 2056. And, and you know, that will clearly be an update. Uh, it's still not the case that it is likely to hit the Earth in 2056. We, we know from uh, the near-Earth asteroid surveys that there is nothing threatening the Earth uh, that we know about for at least the next 100 years. So that's the good news. The bad news is that there are still a few objects that we don't know about, and these things could... Um, you know, could take us by surprise. And in the case of TX-68, this is actually a tiny object. It's only, um, I think it was about 30 metres is the size of it. Uh, yes, which... but that's, 
was it still bigger than the one that exploded over Chelyabinsk? That's right. It's yeah. twice the size of that. So it, it, it's not, um, yeah, it, it's not in the size range that would cause global damage or anything like that. But, but it if would you make a mess. You happen to be underneath it, it will make a mess. That's right, exactly. All right. Uh, I suppose just to finish, uh, now that we've had a, a much better look at it, they might be able to do some better tracking uh, in the future. Indeed, not. that's right. Yes. yes. Now we know where it is, it'll be much easier to keep tabs on it down the track. Mm, OK. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with me, Andrew Dunkley, and astronomer Fred Watson. OK, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, let's turn our attention to last week's solar eclipse because uh, that is uh, one of the fascinating things that we on Earth, mere mortals, can observe in astronomical terms. Uh, this one was seen over a pretty wide area. They are always intriguing and they bring people out in their thousands. And I know you, at one stage in not too, uh, the not-too-distant past, actually travelled all the way to central Australia, I think it was, to, uh, to experience one of these. Uh, that's right. Actually, it was um, northern Queensland. For That was northern the two, two, 2012 eclipse. But since then, uh, early last year, I think it was the 20th of March, I was up in the Faroe Islands, uh, in the, not far from the Arctic Ocean, uh, in the, in the far, north, far north of Scotland, nor, um, between, um, basically between Iceland and Scotland, uh, where um, I have to say we hadn't, didn't have high expectations for seeing that eclipse because uh, the Faroe Islands get, I think it's 280 days of rain a year. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> so good call, Fred. Yeah. But we did go, we did go, and we did see most of it. Uh, we didn't see the total phase. That was just cut out by cloud, but we saw immediately after the total eclipse, and it was actually very interesting to see the effect of this darkness on the, on the landscape. We were overlooking um, looking the, um, uh, the, the, the sound. Uh, the Faroe Islands are a group of islands. There's some beautiful scenery there, so we had a marvellous view of this, this landscape and seascape going dark as the moon covered the disk of the sun. Uh, however, coming back to the one uh, this week, yes, the day after the close approach of the asteroid, it was on Tuesday uh, the 8th, the, um, the, the moon uh, indeed covered the disk of the sun over a short uh, or a, a narrow path, not a short path, a narrow path, about 150 kilometres wide, which stretched from western Indonesia all the way across the Pacific and finally wound up uh, north of Hawaii. So the uh, eclipse path was mostly over ocean, but significant portions of it were over Indonesia. And a lot of people in Indonesia got marvellous views of the eclipse. Um, Indonesia is not known for its its clear skies, actually, um, being an equatorial region. But, smog. Uh, and that's right. But, they, but the, the observers of this eclipse uh, hit on pretty lucky. Uh, the partial eclipse was also seen over uh, wide areas of Southeast Asia and indeed northern Australia, too. We couldn't see it from here in New South Wales, but a lot of people saw the partial eclipse. All of them, of course, taking due care to protect their eyes either with eclipse glasses or by projecting the image of the sun using the pinhole method or something similar. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, the images that we've seen of the total phase of the eclipse are really quite dramatic and show um, the outer atmosphere of the sun, which is really what's relieved, uh, sorry, revealed, not relieved, it's revealed by, uh, by an eclipse. When the moon's disk sits right in front of the disk of the sun, uh, of course, the direct light from the sun's disk is blocked out. And what you see is what we call the corona, mm. which is a stream of, of um, basically energetic particles which are 
being excited into into glowing with a silvery, uh, almost a silvery light. And they also reveal the shape of the magnetic field of the sun. So it's a very interesting thing to see, the uh, solar corona. And um, I, I think, you know, that's the scientific side of it. But I think the thing that grabs most people about solar eclipses is simply the awesomeness of the spectacle. Because here you are with... Uh, basically, the moon being the, the sun being turned to black. Mm. Um, it's an extraordinary coincidence that the disk of the moon exactly fits over the disk of the sun. There is no reason why that should be the case. It just uh, is. It just is, and it is also a temporary phenomenon. If you come back in a couple of hundred million years, the moon will have moved farther away from the Earth, and it will no longer cover the disk of the sun. So we're in a very special place and a very special time. And I think it's one of the most remarkable things in astronomy that, that this coincidence exists. And of course, uh, we, we can learn a lot scientifically or astronomically from witnessing and recording these kinds of events. Indeed, that's right. Less so now, Andrew, uh, given that... Yeah, we've we've uh, seen it so many times. Well, well, there it is again. More to do with the fact... <laughs> it's not quite like that. It's never yeah. like that. <laughs> uh, more to do with the fact that there's a whole flotilla of, uh, of spacecraft which can actually observe the sun from mm. space. But certainly um, scientists always watch, the, uh, watch a solar eclipse. Of course, in the past, it's had some very, very prominent scientific discoveries made by virtue of it, one of them being the confirmation of Einstein's general theory of relativity. Uh, but um, these, these things, uh, I think, nowadays uh, attract a very large following, and people find solar eclipses addictive. Uh, once you've seen one, you think, oh, I've got to see that again. Yeah. Um, and the... It's like me with volcanoes. I've just got to get on top of them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I, I know that feeling as well, and I've done a bit of that myself. Uh, the next solar eclipse is going to be much easier for people to see and will probably attract... Um, uh, a viewership, if I can put it that way, in the tens of millions, because the, the path of the eclipse goes right across the United States of America. This is in August next year. Wow. Uh, and um, the maximum uh, <laughs> maximum length of totality, I think it's, I can't remember the exact duration of it, uh, the, the length of the total eclipse varies from place to place. But next year, the maximum eclipse will be visible from... Nashville. So wow. Nashville is the place you can listen to the strains of country music while you watch the, the sun uh, in complete darkness. Fantastic. All right. And I have to wait 12 years uh, unless I travel to experience this because I believe right. 2028 there will be another uh, total eclipse uh, crossing uh, basically uh, northwest from New South Wales down through uh, Sydney, but it will actually be uh, over the city I live in, a city called Dubbo in central New South Wales. Uh, it will be in the centre of the totality uh, yes, at that time, but that's 12 years away. And that's okay. And that I can tell you, Andrew, is not far away. <laughs> no, it's not really, not really. But uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm certainly not going to miss that if I can help it. <laughs> Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. I'm Andrew Dunkley, and with me, as always, is Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now let's turn our attention, Fred, to an astronaut named Scott Kelly, who's just returned from uh, a bit, almost a year in space, about 340 days in space, and he was up there for a very good reason. Uh, they wanted to find out the impact of zero gravity on the human body long term. Uh, and this is a fascinating story because he went up and his twin brother stayed down so they That's could right. compare notes when they got back. I think this is amazing. And there have been some awesome revelations already. 
Uh, indeed, that's right. So Scott Kelly, yes, he came back to Earth, uh, it's about two weeks ago now. Uh, th this was his second mission, actually, and um, his twin brother, Mark, is also an astronaut uh, and also works for NASA. So the two of them are this ideal test case of, you know, you keep one on the ground, send one into space and see what the difference is, because mm. they are actually identical twins. Um, uh, and, of course, um, the big news that has come from uh, Scott Kelly's latest venture in space is that when he got back down again, he was two inches taller than when he went up. <laughs> What's that, so, about five centimetres five in centimetres, our language? That's right. Yeah, that's, that's quite amazing. It's remarkable, isn't it? And I guess it's not really that hard to understand in the sense that uh, when we are uh, earthbound, we're sitting here uh, feeling the gravitational pull of the earth. M most of the time, apart from when we're sleeping, we're standing up vertically or at least in a vertical posture. And that naturally compresses the spine. So our spines are in a permanent state of compression. Uh, and it's only when you uh, either put people into bed for a long time, and it's the same thing happens then, or send them into space where you you, you actually have weightlessness. Uh, gravity is still there, but you're, you're falling with it, so that's why it all works. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that's when your your spine can basically relax and say, "Ah, this is my my normal uh, my normal length," uh, and that's what's happened with uh, with Scott Kelly. Um, now, the, it, the bad news is it will um, it will all go back to where it was before. Uh, after a while, gravity will will take over again, and he'll correct. he'll end up being back where his brother is. And gravity wins all the time. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, the message, uh, the welcome home message that uh, he got from uh, President Obama was something ended with something like, "I hope you don't find gravity too much of a drag." Uh, so <laughs> I don't know who writes Barack Obama's jokes, yeah. but um, we've only got to put up with it for another few months. <laughs> Now, um, there, of course, there was a serious side to this, uh, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, w we want to know what the impact of zero-G will be on the human body for long-haul uh, space flight, because ultimately we're going to go to Mars and we need to know what's going to happen for a six-month or nine-month trip. Exactly, that's right. So um, this um, year-long uh, sojourn in space was very much geared towards that kind of uh, that, that you know that that kind of future mission. Um, I think the NASA mission profile for their putative Mars mission, which is scheduled, I think, for something like the early 2030s, maybe 2035. Uh, I think the mission profile has um, has uh, something like a two and a half year mm. mission, uh, and not all of that is in weightless conditions. Uh, the uh, the journey to Mars, you can do it in as in as short a time as. Six months, in fact, if you've if you've got a big enough uh, rocket, it will be slower coming back um, because you, you you don't have the same oomph behind your rocket vehicles unless you can put something in orbit around Mars that you can dock with and and use it to propel yourself back. But um, the the bottom line is that the, these are long periods in space, and of course, when you're on Mars as well, you've only got something like half the gravity. Uh, actually, I think it's less than that. It's uh, less than half the gravity that we feel on Earth. Um, and so uh, that, too, will have an effect on physiology. So all these uh, projects are designed to look at how humans behave uh, in, uh, under these conditions. One thing that you can't really simulate in low Earth orbit is the radiation environment, and that is a bridge that yet has to be crossed. Yeah. I think that's a, a still a serious consideration. Indeed. But uh, exciting that they're getting some more and very valuable data, and, and I'm excited too, Fred, because um, I've now found a really cheap way of fixing my back problems. 
<laughs> well, I don't know. It's uh, not that cheap getting into space. <laughs> it will be eventually. Yes, it will be eventually. I just don't think I'll be around for that. Yeah. Very good. Thank you, Fred. Always nice to talk to you. Great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk again. We'll Take care. See you next week. Uh, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory joining us every week on Space Nuts. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you for your company. We'll see you again. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio Boom, and Stitcher, or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.